Hello, everybody. I'm Jason Trost, the host of the Business of Betting podcast. I'm joined today by the CEO of Unicorn, Justin Delario. Welcome to the podcast, Justin. Thanks, Jason. I'm glad to be here. Awesome. Well, why don't we kick off by you giving a little bit of an introduction about Unicorn and yourself? Sure. So um, I'm Justin Delario, the CEO of Unicorn, also the managing director of esports at Entain. Um, for the last couple of months now, we've been in the process of relaunching this new chapter of Unicorn, our uh, esports and video games focused betting and wagering brand. Um, Unicorn is um, a place where uh, what we like to consider kind of a younger post-university Gen Z better is able to go and bet on their favorite um, esports competitions and also bet on themselves playing competitive video games. Awesome. And, and, and give the audience a little bit of an introduction uh, about yourself because you have a, a long background in, uh, in the industry. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm somewhat of an esports veteran. Um, prior to this job and um, working to relaunch and lead this new chapter at Unicorn, I was at Twitch where I led the creation of uh, several esports strategies, the esports division, uh, a number of different engineering projects. I built the original content team at Twitch. I'd been there for a little over... Um, almost seven years um, and was saw was a part of a lot of the growth there. Prior to that, I worked at Razer, the computer product manufacturer um, who builds you know, mice and keyboards, worked on a number of esports campaigns, product development and marketing there. Um, and all of that has been kind of my, uh, my full-time job in esports and video games um, career history. But before that, I actually worked in the U.S. government. And, um, that was after a short time in the U.S. military, so quite a diverse path to get here. But um, the the continuity there has been I've always been involved in esports in some way because even when the government or military was my day job, I was nights and weekends entrepreneurially invested, involved building things in the esports space. Cool. So I I remember esports. I want to say like four or five years ago was super big in the hype cycle. Uh, you know, I don't. Can you take me through the last four years? Like did. Has esports lived up to the hype? Is it growing? I remember um, prognostications that were saying that at some point esports is going to be bigger than NBA and NFL and traditional sports like that. Like, has, has that come to fruition or is it still uh, small compared to traditional sports? I think, um, you know, I think it really depends on the lens you're using to describe its size and, and even its growth. Uh, a lot of when, you know, for, as you mentioned, four or five years ago, when there was a number of hypotheses around what the potential growth of esports could be, would be, what it what size looked like compared to traditional sports, um, people were looking at the most common kind of denominators between the two industries. They were looking at peak viewership across broadcasts. They were looking at total registered fandom in terms of subscribership, people watching, people clicking, social media followings, etc. All of those things are quite large for esports. Um, but something that's important to understand about esports and this is especially this has become even more true in the last four to five years. Is it's extremely wide compared to traditional sports. Uh, in traditional sports, while there's definitely depth in um, path to professional play between minor leagues and amateur leagues and college and high school, and they have all their um, their sheer amount of volume and fandom. Uh, in esports, what you tend to see is a lot wider um, industry where there's um, compared to maybe like 20 traditional sports that probably either you and I can actually name before we have to go look something up. In esports, there's probably around 40 to 50 titles 
uh, video games that people like to compete in and there's content around and there's fandom for and people are tuning in to identify who's going to win, who's the best. And what that's kind of like translated to, especially in the last few years, is that esports has not stopped growing one bit. It's just growing wider. And when those moments of people hypothesizing that esports was going to overtake sports were happening, people were looking at the peaks of the biggest games in esports. They were looking at like a million people concurrently watching uh, Counter-Strike Global Offensive, the game, playing in a major event in Boston, Massachusetts. And they saw this peak viewership number that was so impressive. Combine that with the fact that traditional esports viewers are watching north of two hours at a time, which is um, crazy when you consider the relative stats for like traditional TV watching. Um, so people would have naturally expected that's going to be like 1.5 million, 2 million soon. Um, that's not necessarily happened. I mean, those peaks still occur. I mean, just the other day, there were some large broadcasts on Twitch, for example, in, in some of the biggest esports events. But the increase in viewers and fandom has come. It's just been across a wider spectrum. That's super helpful. So what what would like the Super Bowl of esports be if, if there's an appropriate comparison? What's, what's like the biggest title and the biggest tournament for the biggest title? Well, the reality is in esports, there's multiple Super Bowls. Because um, while I think it has to do with the nascency of the esports industry, how new it is relative to traditional sports, we tend to make a lot of comparisons of esports first thing, esports first Super Bowl, esports first World Series. Esports, like I said, that's 40 to 50 different potential games where people are competing in organic league structures that are only for that game. So in some of the largest um, events for esports, however, um, because there are multiple that you would compare to the Super Bowl. There's uh, four Counter-Strike Global Offensive major events a year. There's traditionally four Dota 2 major events a year, with the largest one being the International, which gains a lot of attention um, for having some of the largest prize pools in esports that have been north of 50, 60 million previously. Um, and then there's the League of Legends World Championship, which is a global event with teams competing from all over the world who compete all year in their local territory leagues to then gain entry into this official World Championship tournament. Those are some of the events that you should look at in comparison to a Super Bowl, but it would be unfair to say any of those have necessarily um, uh, eclipsed the Super Bowl's viewership, which, you know, is pretty ginormous. However, um, ginormous, but um, the... It, yeah, it's those stats like uh, the actual watch times of our users, uh, the amount of engagement they show while watching these broadcasts, the uh, number of forms of uh, engagement they have with the players they love across social media, playing the game themselves, watching, watching while clicking, watching while tweeting. That makes um, the audience of esports events um, pretty, uh, pretty hard to compare to the traditional events. Okay, and so what would you, you mentioned a number of 50, 60 million. Is that like the winner gets 50 million or what, what is that pool attributed? I'm just trying to understand the size of the industry because this, this is a, I, I feel like the old man in the room. Like I used to play uh, Super Mario Kart and that was really fun for me. And, and the, oh my God, the kids, uh, you know, Counter Strike, I'm like, oh my God, there's so much going on here. Um, so the price pool, how does it get like just, Put some numbers on it what does the winner get yeah sure that part in that particular prize pool i could be a little off on this but typical distribution for 60 million would have a winning team maybe take home about 18 million and then the rest of the money gets distributed down to 
subsequent placings in the bracket. So what do you get for winning the Masters? Like the Masters is about that, right? Is it the Masters like 15 million, 20 million? I think it's somewhere between 15 to 20 million with the recent changes in the PGA. And so how many tournaments have 10 million plus payouts for the winners? Uh, on a yearly basis, there's probably some something less than five. Um, more traditionally, uh, even the biggest events are in the range of like zero to five million. Um, but the, it's pretty substantial because as um, if you think about traditional sports where some of the largest events in the world, nobody talks about a prize pool because it's not important. These are really highly paid players. Um, at the same time that prize pools have gone up in esports, uh, a lot of these players have gone up into some pretty high salary figures, millions a year to be playing these video games paid for by teams and sponsors. Uh, and then on top of that, prize pools are available. And in most cases, the way it's kind of played out uh, in the growth of the industry in recent years, the teams themselves, the organizations that kind of house and feed and train the players, they're not taking big or significant cuts of those prize pools. The players have really like um, maintained the ability to keep that themselves. Like that's their earned. So it's a little, I'm not sure about American sports, but like professional soccer is a little bit like that where, you know, they get a hundred million for winning the Champions League or something like that. But, you know, the lion's share of the fees are going to the players and the, the agents of the players. Is that, it, it's, it, so you're saying that's very similar in esports? It's, it's, uh, it's similar in esports, uh, whereas I think in, uh, I can't speak to every traditional sport, but in a number of traditional sports uh, where, the organizations or teams themselves keep the whatever that uh, nominal prize pool is because of their expenses to get the team there and knowing that their players are already highly paid. In esports, at least in the very top ones, in recent years, you've had players paid very high amounts to be on those teams, and then they're still taking the majority of the prize pool and not their organizations. A buddy of mine runs a team called Fanatics. Like these big teams, like what? Um... What do they do? Like, do they specialize on one game? Do they specialize in multiple games? Like, what? How are how are these big global teams uh, approaching the industry? That's a good. That's a good, really good question because that's one of the places that uh, esports looks a lot different than what you might find in traditional sports. Um, one thing you have to uh, you know first identify for context is that in traditional sports, in most cases, teams have been built over years and years and years. And they have generational fandom. There's a, uh, a son or a daughter somewhere sitting on their couch next to their dad or uncle, and they're being told, this is a Tottenham house, and it will only ever be a Tottenham house, and that's your Premier League team, and it can't be any different. That's the same way I was given, like, the Pittsburgh Steelers as my NFL team, for example. Um, whereas in esports, that's not the case. These teams are uh, the oldest, are still less than 20 years old, generally. And the, there's no such thing as generational fandom yet. So when these teams think about their business model, they don't have an immediate advantage of a subscribership and fandom that's been around for years and being passed down from um, you know, family owner, family member households. They've had to venture um, beyond those direct to consumer monetization formats um, that are like typically establishing a bit of a baseline, at least for these teams economics. And they, the way that most of them have evolved is to look a lot more like a media company first, whereas any esports team or player uh, who's a part of that organization is, for lack of better terms, like another piece to the billboard that, that they then go and sell. 
And that's not unlike traditional sports in that there's sponsorship deals and there's, there's uh, rights entitlement. However, um, there's a lot less individual player uh, licensing of their IP and image for uh, individual sponsorship and endorsements. And it's a lot more at the team level because that's almost the entirety of what the team gets in revenue. And then beyond the traditional format teams who actually compete and make up a part of that billboard, what you see is a lot of esports teams, Fnatic included, they will do a lot of work in content and they'll work with influencers and they'll make them a part of the organization to just kind of like expand the size of that billboard and uh, monetize in other ways. It's very content heavy. So content revenues and sponsorships is where they get most of their money. But in all reality, it's a very challenged business model in all of esports, uh, which is like everything in the world right now going through uh, what's the best way to survive the macroeconomic conditions of market downturns, challenges in advertisers spending less, having ripple effect through the business model. Um, esports teams were already a challenged business model in the esports landscape. And there's a potential that in this year or really starting uh, mid last year and through the end of this year and next year, some esports teams won't make it. They will not have evolved enough to include a business model where they've diversified revenues to include either that content, merchandising, um, sold enough long-term sponsorships that they could secure the revenue to get through the storm. Um, and that's, but that's been the nature of the esports team business model. So um, to paint it a, a different way, what you don't have in esports is those teams who represent nothing but a winning team, an athletic organization whose brand and fandom speaks for itself. Sponsorships just come in through the door without little effort. What you have instead is these mini marketing media agencies whose primary property is the players that compete. One of the ways that American sports, uh, or I think global sports, tend to say, stay so powerful and rich is they kind of create these cartels, which is, you know, I mentioned the PGA and, and we see the Saudi Arabian uh, reboot of golf trying to compete with that. And, you know, the NFL is obviously a super big cartel. And at least in European soccer, you have the ability to work your way into the system, unlike in American sports. But I mean, I assume that if I want to create a Dota tournament tomorrow, I can create a Dota tournament tomorrow. So, so the barriers to entry to creating these leagues is is fairly low. Is that is that the right way to think about it? Um, yes, relative to some of the traditional sports models that you um, you you described. However. In the more recent years in esports, there has been at least the setting of foundation of some of these cartels existing. At any given time, there's only so many top players. Those top players um, are all the value, so to speak. They are uh, enticed to play for some of the teams who've already established their brand. The teams tend to band together and negotiate with the operators of tournaments as to whether their tournament is one that the big teams are going to decide to compete in. And what that results in is there are few operators of these leagues and events who tend to do better than the rest. And that also combines with the fact that in this period that esports has been gaining all of this investment and attention over the last four to five years, few parties have then turned around and invested that in those events, making them premier enough, making the players feel like it was special enough, they were treated well. And those uh, have become some of the, the clear winners. And that's especially important in these game ecosystems where um, a game publisher itself who actually makes the IP needs to license that operator of the event to, to go ahead and hold that competition. 
And uh, that looks differently across every game. For example, you, you mentioned Dota. In Dota and Counter-Strike, which are made by the game publisher Valve, they actually have a terms of service that allows uh, competition to be organized with their games. However, if it gets over a certain, I think, size and scope, like prize pool, or maybe if you're planning to take it into an actual public physical space versus online, then you probably need some form of licensing approval from the publisher. Whereas uh, a game like League of Legends, one of the other largest in the world, is completely top-down, operated and organized by the game publisher itself. They control their own esports ecosystem. If you are the one of very few parties who are lucky enough to potentially get a license to operate your own competition with their game, you're probably in a nascent region where they have just not installed infrastructure, but they don't want to see local players going without the opportunity to compete. Got it. Makes sense. One last question about esports, and then we'll pivot to uh, to betting. So the top the top esports, what would you call them? Players, players. Um, are is the makeup similar to a professional athlete? You know, it's a mix of natural talent and hours and hours and hours and hours of training. Or what what is the what makes somebody an elite player besides winning all the time? But what what do they need to do to become an elite player? You know, I think there's a there's a, a common formula that's or beginning to form in, in just recent years where these leagues, prize pools are getting so high, the professionalism attached to the way the teams approach the competitions have meant that regular practice hours, um, doctors on staff, chefs, uh, athletic trainers, all these things go into making sure these um, essentially gamer athletes are ready to compete. Um, but that doesn't mean... In the same uh, in the same vein, there's not players right now who are just coming out of their bedroom at a very young age who just have exceptional talent and they're finding their way into the top ranks of a game. And that's especially true because while there are the biggest games in the world, which we've been talking about, and they have more organized professional scenes, some of the newer games at any given time just don't have that infrastructure yet. Um, so the top, top players, um, they come right out of playing the game like everybody else does in their bedroom at night, getting good on the ranked competitive ladder in the game, uh, people noticing their ability, forming a team with some friends. So it, it varies in terms of the approach across these different games. But at that peak level, it's athletic training. It's monitoring your sleep. It's a certain number of hours playing the game a day. It's drills that aren't just the traditional way to play the game, but work on specific assets. At, um, it's uh, having a chef take care of all your meals. Uh, it, in some cases, uh, teams that have been successful have had, um, they've had therapists attached to the team just to take care of everyone's mental health. It's, uh, it's beginning to look a lot like traditional sports in that regard. Do they have to get one of those spring things for their hand and do that for <laughs> 30 minutes? Uh, believe it or not, that's um, as funny as it. Well, for certain games, that's one of the number one injuries you could face. And I know that sounds like uh, almost like a, a joke, but it's uh, people in certain games, they end up with carpal tunnel at like 24. That probably matches the carpal tunnel of like a 40 year old golfer. I don't, I don't question that there's a huge amount of skill involved in that these people are, are really elite players, but I don't know if I could get to the point where I could call them athletes. It's like, if you can do it in your underwear, are you really an athlete? You know, like, <laughs> Uh, well, I was a wrestler for 17 years, and I basically wore underwear as an athlete. So wrestling was actually my main sport. Did you did you play in college or high school or? or, or... I did. I uh, I wrestled through high school at a school called Wyoming Seminary. It's 
one of the number one and two in the, in the United States with uh, Blair Academy always. And um, I went on to wrestle in college from there. I was a walk on a Northwestern and got my ass kicked in the in Big Ten wrestling. So I didn't last too long, but I, I was okay in high school. Um, okay, let's pivot to sports betting. So what, or betting rather, what does betting have to do with esports? So give me give me your your pitch on why betting can be interesting in the esports context. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a couple different ways to think about it. Um, I think first and foremost, and I described this a little bit ago, this is an extremely engaged fandom. Um, when watching games, they're, uh, they're participating on social media. Um, they're watching these games and competitions on places like Twitch and YouTube where there's other ways to engage with the content than just passively viewing. Uh, and that matches their level of engagement. So when you consider from traditional betting, it, especially the in-play aspect of it, where there's... Um, there's stakes that could be more real time and uh, relative to what's actually happening in the match right now. Uh, I think our esports audience is extremely suited to that offering. So that's one view of it. Um, I think the other is you just have to appreciate generally that um, very similar to traditional sports, this fandom and this adoration for these players and the outcomes of these matches matches is is just as equal to uh, major sports. Um, the thrill of participating in a, a casual bet and while watching one of your favorite competitions just to give it a little more uh, a little more excitement is equally fun for that sports fan as it is for that esports fan. Um, you know one of the challenges however, and this is something that we're extremely focused on at Unicorn is our industry is much more nascent. The infrastructure that's been grown over 50 some years in sports to support lawful safer customer sports betting is brand new in esports. Uh, in fact, in the esports betting space, we uh, aim, we are an operator who aims to be 100% locally compliant wherever we're servicing customers. And that's not traditional to what's existed in just the few years that esports betting has been around. So that's something that we have to do a lot of education on alongside continuing to build our offering and take care of customers that way. So let, let, let me give you my take on esports and, and I want to get your reaction. So, uh, you know. I've always been quite skeptical about esports e betting, rather. Um, like, I, I was pretty bought into the idea that esports as a genre would continue to grow because uh, games are exciting and the kids love it. And, they're, you know, there's just so much interesting games and definitely a lot of momentum of people watching other people playing and the whole Twitch experience. Um, but from a betting perspective, the reason I was skeptical is a few reasons. One, you talk a lot about engagement, but to, to give a counterpoint, I think there's a lot of things that have high engagement but low betting activity. A good example would be the Olympics. You know, everybody watches the Olympics, or the, at least they used to. The Olympics used to be, when we were kids, the Olympics were a really big deal. Everybody would stop and watch the Olympics. Um, but from a betting perspective, almost nobody bets in the Olympics. And the reason for that, my hypothesis anyway, is that people want to bet on stuff that is repeatable and that they think they have a viewpoint on. So if you take, you know, soccer betting is, I don't know how much bigger than rugby betting, but I would say 100 to 1,000 times better, bigger, because people believe that they have an edge in soccer. It's repeatable. Um, they know the players. They have a view on Tottenham versus Arsenal. Um, and so I was skeptical uh, from an esports perspective, because you know, yes, maybe if you stay within a certain competition, within a certain game, there's repeatable attributes. Um, but 
perhaps people's interests are spread wide enough that they don't get a strong viewpoint on player A or player T B or team C. Um, as well as I also thought that, and I'm curious about your reaction on this, that, yeah, I, I agree the streaming numbers are pretty high probably, but my guess is that while people are watching, they're like playing TikTok, they're talking to their dog, they're, you know, they're doing 15 other things. And it's one of those things that like, yes, the stream might be up, but, you know, are they actively watching it? Like, you know, when we were kids, you know, if a football game was on, you like sit down and watch the football game. And I imagine the modern, the modern young man uh, does not sit down and watch two hours of Dota without doing anything else and, and playing with her phone and, and what have you. So for all these sort of attributes, it just never seemed like it made sense um, that this activity would map very well to betting on it. So I'm curious to get your reaction on that. I, th I mean, I think there's probably some, I think some of all those characteristics are true and potentially even part of the friction to growing a, you know, a sizable betting category around esports. But, um, you know, things I would add while that last point, especially may be true about the user who's sitting around watching a Dota match for two plus hours. Um, they're extremely digital native. Um, they're extremely attached to their devices and they've become pretty good at what you're describing, watching and consuming content. That's exciting. Catching the biggest moments while also watching TikTok and while tweeting about something and while checking uh, a fan site about the scores that are appearing in the same content they're watching. And they're not, and that's not a detractor from the ability an ability to then like do something else. That's, that's just who they are as a user. Um, another point I would, um, make which uh, kind of, because uh, I, I, I kind of feel the same way as you do about like why the Olympics aren't as, um, uh, as popular a betting category and why it's hard to take away uh, an edge from you know, what might happen in the Olympics to then go ahead and bet on and feel like you might, uh, you might be advantaged to win. Um, in esports, something you have to realize is all of these players that compete at the highest level they're one again digital natives they're digital first video game players attached to all social medias they're typically also streamers on twitch and youtube where the, their fans get to watch almost all of their practice them sitting around at night playing competing how well they're hitting headshots in the counter-strike game how well they're earning gold in lane in league of legends um they typically almost all manage and are very active across social media. It's not like in traditional sports where you get a lot of teams that are managing that for players, at least some of the past generational ones. Of course, a lot of the younger players coming on are very clearly managing their own social media. Um, and uh, the amount that fans in esports feel like close proximity to these players is unlike anything that's ever existed in traditional sports. So if that were uh, for an esports fan, um, a potential, like one potential detractor to then being invested in betting on esports. Well, then I would just say no. It's it's actually not. If you're looking for extra information to feel advantaged in what a player's outcome and their this weekend's match will be, there's more information available in esports than anywhere else. Uh, you literally see their practice and you see when they're in a bad mood and they tweeted about the fact they broke up with their girlfriend. So if that's what a sharp better in esports was looking for, it's available. Um, but I think. You know, that still only probably makes up a small category of who wants to bet on esports right now, the person who's looking for those advantages. Because um, it's a, it's just not been as, 
this betting has not been available for very long to esports fans. And a lot of these fans are young, and that's something that we have to be very considerate of, that we only want to be speaking to the adults in this audience. But uh, it, there are adults like me who kind of started to have a appreciation of this esports phenomenon around the early 2000s. And now I, am, now I have disposable income, and I still am heavily consumed to the biggest gaming matches around the world. And if I... You know, if an offer to you know casually place a bet to make my consumer of esports a little more fun is made available to me, I'm I'm a likely candidate for that. And there's more people like me, so I think that you know those points of friction definitely exist. Um, but we also just have to be patient with something that's going to grow over time. And there's a lot of education involved. Um, you know, we talk about in our industry like post PASPA US and the blowing up of. Um, you know, sports betting, but I think people, you know, folks like you and I also know it's not like all of those people are now newly crowned betters. They're just coming on to white market betting from the black market betting in the U.S. they were doing for years. Uh, however, th in the esports fandom, I don't think that's necessarily the same. While there's definitely some black and gray market betting activities going on, um, I just think there's a lot of people who aren't betting because it hasn't been made available to them. It hasn't been shared with them. Unlike in the U.K. or Australia where they would have sat around that football game and every member of the household had a bet on, and they were talking about it and they were making fun of each other's out potential outcomes. Like that's just not, wasn't happening in the U S in the same way where a lot of esports fandom is. It definitely wasn't happening in Asia the same way where a lot of esports fandom is, but not necessarily addressable right now for betting. Um, so the education has to come differently, which means these users need to find it for themselves. But the good news is they're so heavily digitally subscribed that you can reach them easily. Uh, and, and we just have to be patient with that. So since Unicorn was acquired by Intain, I believe for about 50 million pounds at the end of 2021, you guys are part of a huge, you know, global sports betting company. Um, how do you fit in with the broader Intain family? Are you guys a standalone brand? Do you plan to be integrated in with Ladbrokes? Like, how do you fit with the other brands? So the way Entain is um, set up across its most mature brands is a lot of shared technology and then independent label teams who run the Ladbrokes UKs of the world, Entain Australia, which has Ladbrokes and Ned, BWIN and the various countries in Europe where that's present. Um, Esports and or Unicorn at Entain is a part of like a strategy to continue appealing to new incremental audience and um, produce more new interactive products that are associated with the type of audience we want. So we're actually set up a little bit independently in that we have full control of our tech stack, uh, marketing functions, operations, trading, and risk, um, compliance, et cetera. And um, that enables us to um, you know, meet the demand of this type of customer that we're after, who's younger, digital native, has really high expectations as it relates to their experiences uh, with brands. Uh, this allows us to remain more agile, test faster, learn faster, produce products quicker, um, because naturally the 28,000 person uh, or so Entain group and central platform there is just going to be a little bit slower moving machine. And we want to really tackle the opportunity. What, uh, what jurisdictions are you guys live in? Sure. So we're currently live in Can Canada, minus Ontario and uh, Brazil. Those were two very attractive markets for our soft launch. They represent a really wide spectrum of esports fandom and gaming customer. And we thought there was no better chance to uh, kind of like learn as much as possible before we then continue to expand our uh, rollout. Because unlike, to your point, some other parts of the Entang group, Unicorn intends to be a very global brand. It's not isolated country by country. 
I'm not sure how experienced you are on the on the sports side of uh, betting, but do you? Do, what are the similarities and differences that you can think of, or that you have noticed between a traditional better and an esports better? Well, on um, on Unicorn, we actually feature a full sports book. So right next to your esports, you can bet on the Premier League, NFL, NBA, PGA, whatever you know fits your taste. Um, you know, Ukrainian um, table tennis, if you want, right? Um, and we actually see that a lot of, um, you know, heavily subscribed bettors, whether they're in esports first or sports first or betting across both categories. Um, it's definitely clear that when we have a user who is predominantly a sports better first, that uh, as seems to me to be traditional across sports betting generally, that they're delving further into available odds across game categories that aren't necessarily the most popular in the world, but that's because they're, you know, they're looking for looking for uh, leverage and advantaged odds like um, you know any sharp betters are uh, in esports there's a little bit less of that um, customer profile right now but that's because like what we've been talking about it's it's a pretty new category um, but similar to you know all of my kind of describing of this customer and how engaged they are when we do have those users who are placing a high volume of bets across esports they tend to get into the pretty nitty-gritty as it relates to what they are willing to bet on they like derivative markets. They like those things that are extra detailed and represent like where they would place their fandom in esports, the things that they would be willing to say will happen because of how well they know these players. Like who's going to get the first uh, tower destruction in a League of Legends map in one one round of a three-round match? Like those are the types of bets they're immediately attracted to because that's level of knowledge if they've already chosen to be an esports better that they possess. What's the regulatory uh, situation uh, in the states and I guess globally, uh, broadly? From you know, I think some states support it, some don't. What's what's the current status of it? Yeah, I could be one off on this, but about twelve states in in the U.S. support esports betting today, uh, and then in places like Nevada and New Jersey, there's some um, you know technical advisory board type groups set up to really help continue to think about what additional legislation is needed around esports betting. Um, and then around the world, there's around 20 to 30 different, um, different regulating bodies who include esports in at least some way. And what I mean by that is in some places, esports is rolled up into sports betting and it's just an accepted sport. Maybe there's some restrictions as to what needs to be true about the particular esports that you can take bets on it, but it's just included there. In some places, it's named. It's esports betting. And then there's these specific rules about it. And then in some cases right now, I think esports betting just started and the local government never necessarily described if it was okay or not, but then they just started accepting the revenue like they do on everything else. And that's um, definitely uh, one of the most important, but also at times challenging parts of building a new business in this space is we have to go government by government and understand if one, we can be governed to operate locally, but then also that the right protections are in place for the customers. When I think of esports betting, the the company that comes to mind is Pinnacle. I think they were very early investing in esports. How would you compare yourself to their offering? Uh, well, Pinnacle is a pretty large brand, um, and they're one of these brands in sports who have added esports as an adjacent offering. And for some of their customers, it's just an additional category of bet to place. Um, 
Then on top of that, Pinnacle is a known odds provider, and they run trading for esports or some esports as a part of their sellable uh, odds inventory. Um, with Unicorn, we're only the direct-to-consumer brand. We're not um, producing and selling odds, obviously. But then also, we are an esports and video games first brand. Well, in fact, whereas for the Pinnacles and the Betways and the Bet365s of the world, uh, esports is an adjacent offering that's done well for them. Um, on Unicorn is esports and video games first. We do feature traditional casino. We do feature um, traditional sports betting, but those are our adjacent offerings. And if you go go beyond the brand, what about the product? Like, do you guys have similar amounts of markets and bet types, or is there anything that they do that you don't, or vice versa? Um, at any given time, any sports book could be like one step ahead in like a new product area, just depending on what they're prioritizing, but. Unicorn Sportsbook right now is the most expansive in the world as it relates to the amount of markets and features for esports. Uh, we have a lot of different um, games, um, and then, as, but then as it relates to individual, you know, exotic markets or special products, you know, we're, we're really trying to listen to our customers and determine where to go next. Uh, we very intentionally just recently did this soft launch in Canada and Brazil because while after the acquisition. We took Unicorn offline and started to prepare for this next chapter and built a lot of new product in the background. We knew the best way to get it right would be to get into market as soon as possible, go that last you know, five yards on every product with the customers that we're actually able to talk to in mind and getting their feedback. Uh, so over the next year or so, we have a lot of product feature releases coming, but uh, what you'll find on Unicorn today is not too dissimilar to what Unicorn went offline a year ago except for that expansion of the sports book, uh, heavily expanded casino offering. Um, and of course, um, but you know, something that's different than uh, just the sports book on Unicorn is we have our skill-based product suite where players can connect their game accounts. And because of their own performance in the competitive games they play, we will produce custom odds for them to bet on themselves to win their matches. Uh, and in cases where betting on themselves to win isn't enough, we give them odds on their chance to get at least 15 kills on top of that win or three bomb plants in Counter-Strike. I just started playing chess for the first time in 15 years, and I'm ranked 600, and it keeps going down, so I don't know. Do you, do you, do you take bets on people playing chess? Do you have uh, you know old-school games like that? So it's definitely something that I've thought about and looked into, um, but that has a... It has a lot to do with my bias because I've worked really closely with chess.com for years now. Uh, it was a big part of helping them find success on Twitch. And, you know, they've grown tremendously over the uh, very recent years. Um, you, know, you couldn't ask for anything better than Queen's Gambit for marketing during COVID when people have uh, an increase in things to, you know, time to do things online, right? Uh, and they've done a great job with it. So I've definitely, uh, you know, thought about in terms of like what products they build that go beyond just traditional chess, but all the challenges and puzzles, what does that look like in a gambling format? And it's pretty interesting to me, but not something I can um, say we're launching or anything like that anytime soon. Um, the thing about chess is in the most traditional format, you know, and this is probably why a lot of rating systems for games and competitions around the world are based on it. They have the ELO format and it's pretty accurate. So it makes for that traditional chess heads up betting experience not being so enticing because you kind of know who's going to win. But I think there's a lot of opportunity to bet on, you know, what's the opening that a player is going to use, uh, who's going to take the next rook off the board, et cetera. Et cetera. So um, um, you're, you said you're in Brazil um, and Canada. Do you plan to go to, to more markets or are you going to 
make sure that the product's working in those markets before you uh, keep expanding? You know, it's a little bit of both. We want to maintain that um, conservative attitude as it relates to ensuring that things are set up properly, they're working, customers appreciate what we're doing. But we also have to be cognizant of the fact that customers are going to be de different in every region and appreciate different aspects of what we're doing. Um, but we also have ambitions to expand quickly. So we're, 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 we're thinking about both strategies at the same time. Uh, and, I, you know, I think expanding to as many places as we can eventually is important because of who we're trying to talk to. This is an audience who, again, digital native, phones in their hands, grew up with content on demand. They probably regularly enjoy something like Netflix without too much consideration for geo restriction, except for, you know, the shows that are only available in certain places or Twitch or YouTube where esports content is not geo blocked and it's free. So when all of a sudden that potential audience for us is hindered by the fact that we're only available in a country or two, then we're not meeting the potential of growing a brand like this. So, so like I said, we want to get the products right, but we also want to be, um, you know, speedy and getting to more places so we can take care of more people who we think want our offering. Last question before I let you go. What do you want to be when you grow up? <laughs> you know, I, I want to, um, I want to find more success in my career and build things I'm proud of. And, uh, I predict at some point that'll mean that I'm probably not working a day job in anything and I'm involved in investing and advising a lot of different projects. And it's at that point that I'm going to spend even more time on golf and I currently play three to four to five days a week. So I, I think I could fit some more in. Thanks so much for joining us, t teaching me about esports. I learned a lot. Um, it's, it's obviously a growing industry and you guys have an exciting approach to this, uh, this space. So thanks very much for joining on and explaining it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Okay, cheers. <laughs>